Good morning. My name is Luigi Pedersini from Italy, and uh, I'm chairman of the Elbow and Wrist Committee for ISACOS. We have uh, to thank ISACOS for the opportunity to organize this uh, webinar about a topic uh, that is really very important, very frequent uh, in our surgery. So, uh, thanking you also, Smith and Nephew, for the support. I, I don't really have a lot of time, but I want to introduce you the faculty, um, Alessandro Marinelli from Italy, Andrea Celli and Grand Bain from Australia. And I leave to Toshi Nakamura the, to present and introduce the um, people of the wrist uh, stiffness, if you can say that. Benjamin Graves as well, Deepak Patia is uh, busy today in India. So we have the prop, we have the opportunity to share our uh, experience in this uh, in this uh, in this webinar, and it's really extremely important because it's uh, a topic that I believe is uh, uh, difficult to really solve uh, to really um, give an answer to our patient. So please uh, go on, and we start with Alessandro Marinelli with uh, the classification of the um, stiff uh, elbow. Thank you, Dr. Pedersini. Uh, my name is uh, Alessandro Marinelli, and uh, I work at the uh, Rizzoli Orthopedic Institute of uh, Bologna. I have uh, no disclosure. We know that elbow stiffness is a disabling condition that can significantly limit the freedom of action of the hand and therefore of the whole upper limb. Elbow stiffness is not a diagnosis, but just a clinical sign that can be caused by a variety of elbow disorders. Being able to understand and therefore to classify elbow stiffness is the first step to plan the surgical treatment. Several classifications have been developed for elbow stiffness. Considering the plane of motion, we can have stiffness in flexion extension and stiffness in pronosupination. Elbow Elbow extension can be restricted by contracture of the anterior soft tissues, like the skin of the cubital fossa, the flexor uh, tendons, and the anterior capsule, or by posterior bony impingement. At, at the opposite, elbow flexion may be restricted by contracture of the posterior soft tissues, like uh, triceps tendon, the posterior capsule, the posterior band of the uh, medial collateral ligament, ulnar nerve compression, or by an anterior osseous impingement. Considering the anatomical location and the theology, Dr. Morey divided elbow stiffness in extrinsic stiffness, involving extra articular factors that spare the joint space as a capsular contracture, ulnar nerve neuropathy, and heterotopic stiffications. And intrinsic stiffness, including articular incongruency, intraarticular adhesion, loose bodies, and impinging osteophytes, and mixed forms with both intrinsic and extrinsic elements. 
In the 2018th Isaacos newsletter, Dr. Bain and I proposed the elbow machine, an all-inclusive classification where the brain is represented by the switch, the corner by electric cord, muscle and tendons by motor, cable and levers, ligament and capsule by constraints, and the articular surface and synovium is represented, is represented by uh, bearings. This classification highlight, uh, allows to, uh, us to highlight the four distinct anatomical areas, intraarticular, capsule, extraarticular, and nerves, where disorders may affect the elbow motion. Recently, in the last Elbow Isacos book, edited by Batia, Bain, Failing, and Graves, Dr. Bain and I proposed the stiff classification where stiff is the acronym of stiffness types and influencing factors that highlights five common disorders causing stiffness. Soft tissue contracture, arthritis, HO, malunion, nonunion, and chronic subluxation, also uh, called the persistent instability. As well, the six influencing factors that often affect the treatment and the clinical outcome, like ulnar nerve symptoms, the presence of hardware, prior surgery, calcification of LCL or MCL, skin contracture, articular pain, and loose body. Moreover, based on the stiff classification system, it's possible to propose a treatment algorithm that includes the severity of the disorder as a guide to the surgical treatment and the preferred operative approach, open or arthroscopic. We do not have time to discuss the detail of this uh, classification. However, we like to share it with you because we think that this new classification system highlights the etiology of elbow stiffness and provides a framework to direct the surgical management and predict the likely clinical outcomes. Thank you. Th thank you, Isakos, for this opportunity to provide this presentation. Uh, so this is a very interesting topic. It's a pleasure to share this with you. I think when we see these patients with a stiff elbow, it's important that we understand what the basic problem is, what the pathoanatomy is. We find the CT scan particularly useful in this particular group. Uh, when we're looking at the osseous structures, we sometimes now use a 4D CT scan that helps us identify what these concepts are. But I'd just like to highlight this bottom one on the right where we can see this heterotopic ossification and the ulnar nerve goes through this area. So that's clearly a, a one at risk. Some of the soft tissue structures are also important. We can see the anterior capsular structures are likely to lead to the pix flexion deformity. We know the posterior bundle of the MCL can lead to a lack of flexion. And then there's this quadrate ligament between the radius and ulna that can restrict supination. I'm not gonna go through all the details of the portals, but we basically use the two centimeter rule, which is that we use go two centimeters proximal to the main osseous landmarks. It's important to protect and understand the ulnar nerve and the other structures. We won't go through that today, but what we really need to do is get an understanding of all aspects of the joint. So we like to use this box concept that we're using multiple portals to get the optimized view and the best instrumentation so that we can actually perform the surgical procedure we need to. So when we're planning it, what we need to do is we often use the 3D CT scan and create a prescription for the surgery where we're debriding these areas 
and all the bone work is done first so that the capsule maintains the space and that we can get rid of the bony debris. We then uh, go ahead and do whatever soft tissue work is required. So we could, for example, do a linear capsulotomy at the top or a more radical capsulectomy and taking out much more of the tissue. And theoretically, we can take all the capsule out of the entire anterior aspect of the elbow. In elbow arthroscopy, the use of retractors, I think, are an important addition as to how we do elbow arthroscopy. And we can see this retractor being placed into the front of the elbow and being used to push the anterior capsule out of the way. This is a dry elbow arthroscopy. We're cleaning the soft tissues out. Once, if the loose bodies come into view, take them out when they're right in front of you. Otherwise, you might have trouble finding them later. So we're coming back in now. We've got these osteophytes above the capitellum over the radial fossa. These are soft, the osteophytes, and these can just be removed. We usually like the dry arthroscopy, and we see here with the fluid, we can take the fluid out, and then you can see the amazing view that we get with the dry arthroscopy. And of course, it increases the surgical uh, operating time because we're not filling the soft tissues with fluid. And we get a, just a better understanding of the anatomy and the pathoanatomy. There are many different ways to take out the coronoid process. What we like to do is use an osteotome. We use a hokey osteotome and we, we hit it firmly with a small uh, uh, mallet. And then we take that whole olecranon piece out, um, olecranon or coronoid process uh, fragment out. The other technique that a lot of surgeons like to use is this OK procedure where a fenestration is made with a trephine and there's pituitary rongeurs or a kerosin rongeur, we can take out any of the bone fragments. The capsular release, uh, I don't think is required for all patients, but those patients who have a marked uh, restriction, particularly after removing the osseous structures, a capsular release can be performed with cautery or also with uh, basket forceps. And we can see here a case that Luigi's presented for us, brachioradialis and just part of the capsule with the radial nerve just sitting to the other side. So the radial nerve is a structure really at risk. So we can see the capsule with the radial nerve in the adjacent to it. And in this cadaveric model, same elbow, we can see where the radial nerve lies over the anterior aspect of the radial head. To get into the posterior aspect of the elbow and down the gutters can be a bit of a challenge. And this little technique of tilting the scope in the right direction and getting the chondrotome straight down the line of the gutter is important. It's a common spot for loose bodies and the osteophytes can also be deprived in this area. Clearly on the medial side, the ulnar nerve is at risk. So with regard to the nerves, we need to be careful with our shavers. We tend to use bipolar cautery. We like to use retractors, but basically don't cut whatever you, you really don't need to cut. So keep it very safe and simple. The, uh, we've also been able to do some arthroscopy in this area in the proximal radial ulnar joint to debride these osteophytes and some of the soft tissue contractures. This is a little bit more challenging, we think, but this is an area which is evolving. And the other aspect is now we're doing arthroscopy, but also endoscopy into the soft tissues. We're releasing the nerves here. So I think in 10 years time, there'll be this nice mix of arthroscopy and endoscopy to be able to perform surgical procedures. And finally, uh, the ISACOS group, particularly the upper limb committee, I think have done some outstanding work in these two publications, one on the elbow and one recently on endoscopy with the elbow, wrist and hand. I really think you'll find them about your value to you in your practice. Luigi, thank you very much for having me involved. It's a great honor for me to be here today with you. And thanks also to the ISACOS for organizing a very interesting webinar series.
I also want to say to thanks Dr. Pedersini and Dr. Nakamura for their kind invitation to be here. So my topic will be on open opsula capsular technique. I think it's very important to define at the beginning the problem. So we have in albostiflis to take care of soft tissue retraction according to the muscle capsule and ligament contracture, but also sometimes we also to take care of a joint congruency and a bone deformity as a consequences of post-traumatic lesions or degenerative disease. I like to start and to thinking when I treat an elbow stiffness, we preserve a joint surface about five different steps. The first one will be release the anterior and posterior capsule, remove a heterotopic ossification or calcification around the joint, remove a bone impingement, preserve or restore the collateral ligament function and protect the narrow vascular structures around the elbow. When we approach an elbow, uh, an open using an open surgical technique, we can use a limited or extensive exposure. We can use a single or more skin incision around the elbow. We can use a, a lateral approach using a lateral column approach. We can add an a posterior transicipital approach, or also we can move medially using a medial column approach. But sometimes we can add all these approaches in just one single skin incision posteriorly called global approach. We, we release the uh, subcutaneous tissue and we can move from medial to lateral and posterior. Talking about open surgical steps, we have, uh, I like to divide my approach in four steps. The first and the second one will be on the lateral side. We can perform the anterior and posterior capsulotomy and capsulectomy through the lateral side and perform the bone remodeling and the heterotopic ossification excision. But sometimes we can move medially. And after performing a urinary neurolysis, we can completely our anterior and posterior exposure and the bone remodeling and the capsulotomy and uh, performing a release of a posterior band of uh, MCL. I like to perform this surgical step, this surgical procedure in supine position with a patient in supine with the arm on the chest and the pillow under the forearm. In this way, I'm able to move the elbows around from medial to lateral and posteriorly. The first step will be laterally using the column lateral approach. I like to perform incisor the skin and go directly to the fascia to avoid the risk of the formation of a cutaneous neuroma. And after, I prepare the anterior and posterior compartment, detaching the muscle from the humerus, keeping the knife closer to the, to the bone and preparing all the anterior compartment and the posterior compartment using the uh, column lateral approach. And this way, after this, I am put one hormone an anteriorly and one hormone an posteriorly, and I am able to expose the anterior compartment, as you can see over here, the anterior capsula, and the posterior capsule. Uh, after uh, keeping the hormone in situ, I perform the capsulectomy anteriorly and capsulectomy. So I remove the capsula from the bone, detaching and removing the soft tissue. And so I am able to expose the anterior compartment to check for the anterior impingement, bone impingement. I see the radial head, the coronoid, and the radial and, uh, and uh, coronoid fossa. 
and when I'm able to do the removing of a heterotopic calcification and the reshape of the coronoid and radial head fossa using a high-speed bar anteriorly and posteriorly. At this point, I have to be very careful regarding the radial nerve. The radial nerve, as I may say before, are very close to the capsule. So I have to be very careful when I perform the anterior exposure. But sometimes I have to move also on the medial side. And after I perform a ulnar neurolysis, we have to be very careful regarding the ulnar nerve, in particular in stiff elbows, because we have to think about the possible compression point, secondary compression point. So release the nerve proximally to the arcator structures, think about the medial intermuscular septum, release the nerve at the cubital tunnel, and distally to the deep flexor pronator aponeurosis. And after this, I perform the posterior capsulotomy and capsulectomy, removing and moving away the tricep standard. But sometimes we have also to move anteriorly and completely our anterior exposure from the medial side. And we use the medial column approach, detaching the brachialis and the flexor pronator muscle. And so I complete the bone remodeling and the capsulectomy from the medial side. At this point, we have to be very careful to the medial nerve. We have to be remember that the medial nerve is just anterior to the brachialis, so very close to the uh, olecranon and to the coronoid process. And so keep in mind that you, when you go with a knife, you have to be very close to the bone and keep the knife close to the bone. Sometimes we have to do a posterior directly tricipital approach for very extensive uh, bone formation. And we do a triceps approach, keeping, try to keep intact the posterior part of the proper tendon, the proper medial proper tendon of the triceps and detaching the lateral side and working on the posterior side. So in conclusion, I think it's very important when we approach an elbow stiffness to think about the Johnson face congruency and the bone deformity, to think about the soft tissue and neurovascular structures that are close to the nerves and can be influenced by the stiff elbows. And also to talking about the patient about the surgical expectation. This is very important. In particular, in a preserved elbow joint surface, I believe that the open approach can be considered as an alternative to an arthroscopic procedure or as a combined procedure. And this depends on the entity of the damage that we have to uh, treat it and on our ability with one or another surgical approach. Thank you very much for your kind attention. Inviting me to present uh, my experience on arthroscopic release of stiffness. Me and Dr. Perdicini started our experience in the 1991 and published a paper on the first publication on the arthroscopic release of the wrist stiffness. Just a moment. Okay. Um, nothing to declare. And uh, these are three joints of the wrist that we take to take some consideration when we consider the release and the uh, uh, arthrolysis of the wrist. We will talk about only the mid-carpal joint and the radiocarpal joint, not all the distal radiolar joint. We have a surgical technique consider the portals, radiocarpal, mid-carpal, not the distal radiolar joint at this moment. With, starting with the joint brain, 
fibrotic band release, radiocarbon capsule realization, and loose body removing a fluoroscopic check to control what we have done during the surgery. All this surgery are done by dry arthroscopy. Never use the wet arthroscopy, only some flashing just to remove the debridement inside of the joint. We presented our first experience with the chain in 2006 and then the in 2007. The instrumentation that we use are the shaver, mini blade, no more radio frequency because we don't use anymore the water into the joint, periosteal elevator, and osteotone, like for the elbow. And this is a special hook plate that permitted to release the capsule from dorsal to volar. We started with the, uh, using the box concept proposed by Bain. Thanks to Bain, we have the possibility to enter to the joint from all the parts of the joint, from T4 portal, all the dorsal one, and the volar one, and that we can perform the complete visualization of the joint. How I proceed? With four steps for the radiocarpal joint, internal debridement and fibrotic band resection. Then we start pass to the carpal bone capsule fibrotic detachment, then capsule contractor resection, and osteophyte resection and joint regularization. And all, when, all of them are stopped at the end of the singular step, just to verify how much the wrist mobilization will get. So uh, we can stop it if we are satisfied, or we continue. This is the to demonstrate it. The portal, 3-4-1 portal, in which we started to release the radial sides of the radiocarpal joint. When we have done that, we can find that the fibrotic, fibrotic band that will be all complete or partial, and then we have to resist this fibrotic band that divide the radiocarpal joint in two rooms, one radial and one ulnar. And then we can do that by forceps or shaver or blade what you want to detach completely the fibrotic band. When we finish that, we continue in the ulnar side, removing the fibrotic and tissue uh, in the ulnar part of the ulnocarpal and radiocarpal joint. Then we stop to ver verify the wrist mobilization. And if you are satisfied, we stop. If you are not satisfied, we have to continue to release and pass to the other step. The second step is carpal bone capsule fibrotic band of fibrotic capsule detachment. This is the drawing that show how we can get it. The scope is 1.2 portal and 3.4 portal. There is the periosteum elevator that detach from the dorsal part and then in future in the volar part, the fibrotic tissue from the capsule to the bones. And this permitted the elevation and the, the destruction of the joint and that permitted the flexion extension. This is the technique that show how we can get this under the visualization, under the control with the scope. And then this could be a very good uh, flexion extension of the wrist after this step of the partial joint. Resection. This is the volar resection. We do the same with introducing the periosteum in one, two portal under control with, with a scope in three, four portal. And then we detach the volar part of the capsule. And then we can stop or not if you are not or not satisfied. And then we pass to the capsule contractor resection, according to Bain's suggestion, resection only the volar or the dorsal or volar and dorsal radiocarpal ligament, not the ulnar carpal, just not to permit the translation, transmigration of the, the carpal bones. This is the resection. 
or partial or complete or both bolar and dorsal. And this is the technique suggested by Bain that protects the tendon, the dorsal tendon to resex. This is a very important uh, technique uh, using the hook blade that permitted the resection, the dorsal parts, and uh, also the dorsal bolar parts of the ligament. If you are satisfied, we stop it. If you are not satisfied, we control with the fluoroscopic. If there is some osteophyte that determine the limitation of the flexion extension, like proposed by uh, Paco de Pinal, that the dorsal part of the uh, radius, margin of the radius, had to be rejected to permit the extension, complete extension of the wrist. So we pass from the arthroscopic wrist arthrolysis to arthroscopic resection arthrolysis. And then we are finished. But what about the mid-carpal joint? If you are not completely satisfied, you have to verify also the mid-carpal joint. And we produce the same passage, internal debridement with robotic band resection, dorsal bone capsule adherence, trichoetromatural ligament resection if needed, and dorsal capital neck resection. So this is the first, uh, first step of fibrotic band resection. I found this uh, um, ligament, this band, um, only in one case in my experience that part, uh, uh, given the uh, conjointing of the uh, two parts of the bones, the capital dermatum and the lunar triquetra uh, bones, and then we resected with periosteum uh, elevator or with a serum. Then we pass to release the dorsal capsule and the volar capsule too. And for the volar capsule, we can resect this particular special uh, portal, the ligament from the triquetrum and the, um, the emet. And this permitted the, the, the release and the extension and the flexion of the, of the joint. And this uh, uh, is another trick that you can improve the extension, resection the dorsal part of the uh, capital or resection of the tip of the dorsal part of the radius, permitting the extension, complete extension of the joint. This is a particular uh, case, to, uh, one case that I show, in which there was a, a rigidity in the flexion extension, and also in the prone supination, because it was involved also the distal ulnar joint that I will not take to, into consideration this time. And this was the results after 30, 36, 36 months with a good result frame, uh, even if not complete, but was completely satisfied. Thank you very much. And thank you all of you. So I have nothing to disclose. So when we talk about wrist stiffness, um, there's uh, different um, comp components which can be extrinsic and intrinsic. And mainly I'm going to concentrate on intrinsic. And we have a degenerative joint that can cause pain. One of the main contributors for wrist stiffness is definitely pain. And so how do we treat them? Well, we can treat them conservatively with analgesics, or we can do it surgically if we failed. And that includes wrist denervation on erectomy. So first we have to understand the anatomy of the wrist and about the nerves around the wrist. What are the innovations? So you can see that there are the dorsal side and the palmar side, they're different kind of nerve, they're different nerves, including AIN, PIN, some of the superficial um, brachial, um, uh, superficial radial nerves, um, articular branches, as well as downer nerve branches. And what are the indications for the denervation of the wrist? And do we have to ablate all the nerves that's around the wrist? And how do we do it? 
So the indications are mainly osteoarthritis, which could be primary or secondary, or in some kinds of osteonecrosis like Kinmox disease or Preezer's disease, or even inflammatory arthritis. Um, there's talks about ligamentous injury without degenerative changes like dynamic risk instability, but this is usually not done alone, and I will tell you why. So what are the techniques? Well, this is Sir Wilhelm's techniques, which is described in 1966, and basically is a, two, um, a few kinds of incisions that basically ablate all the nerves that we talk about. So that includes the lateral antipracticity nerves, the, um, the palmacutaneous nerve of the, um, of the median nerve, the AIN, PIN, and also the, um, the superficial radial nerve, as well as the dorsal branch of the ulnar nerve. And this is a description in 1998 by Gushenik, which is slightly smaller. So you have a slightly smaller incision, but you have multiple incisions and you're able to ablate all the nerves. We can also advocate to do a preoperative pre um, blockade, which includes basically blocking all these nerves and to see whether it works. And if it works, then we proceed with the denervation. And these are some of the results. It can show that they all seem to have good results, although in the long term, as you can see, in full about 9.6 years or 12 years, not everybody will, will have improvement and not everybody will sustained. But you can see that there is uh, over 50% improvement and they pe people are satisfied with it. But there are people who said, well, do we really need to denervate all these nerves or could we just denervate the main nerves? And therefore there's a description and propagation of, of the post of partial risk denervation. That includes mainly the PIN and the AIN. And that was formally described by Berger in 1988 using one incision. So instead of using multiple incision, now we just use one longitudinal dorsal incision. We retract the extensors tendons, and then we find the PIN, and then we open the interosteous and we interosteous membrane, and we find the AIN, and we cut both of them. And these are some of the results, which shows that again you have good results, although the one in two thousand six, which. Um, who talk about dynamic instability, you can see that there's, six, there's only 68% survival rate. So we think that it is probably not the standalone procedure for dynamic instability, and you need the add-on procedures as well. So what are the literature that, complain, that compare the complete versus the partial risk invasion? The systematic review shows that actually both procedures are effective in terms of pain and range of movement. How, and the reoperation rate is slightly larger and slightly higher for the partial. For completion rate, however, is more in the complete denervation. And another meta-analysis shows that similar, again, there's similar outcome in both techniques. But what does all that mean? So what should we do? Well, we know that risk denervation, it is a viable option for pain relief at the risk, especially if they have degenerative changes, especially for the short term. For partial or complete, I think they are both effective. And they have, however, there are studies that shows that they're poor result for dislocated fractures and fracture dislocation. I think it can be used as a standalone procedure, however, probably not for dynamic instability. And however, it can be used for other add-on procedures. For example, you can have a reconstruction plus uh, denervation. 
the patients may need to know that you need to have a secondary surgery later on in long term. And the preoperative blockade, even though that initially they, we advocate the use of preoperative blockade to see whether it is usable or not, actually there are pros and cons study that shows that it is controversial. So for me, my approach is I will do routine lymphectomy for all my rheumatoid arthritis cases. For example, during the sinovectomy or tendon reconstructions. For Cases who refuses to have salvage procedures like limited fusions or proximal row capectomy and want a quick solution. And as well as selective cases who we, I do salvage procedures, but I know that they are very painful and I will tend to use neurectomy at the same time. So for example, these are the rheumatoid arthritis cases for the dorsal and palmar, and I will do, and you can see the, the, the PIN and the AIN very clearly after the sinovectomy. So I will just, I will just do this neurectomy. This is another patient with 50 years old with left, left wrist pain and stiffness, working in the kitchen, and you can see that as SL dissociation. However, with the wrist arthroscopy, I showed that actually it has SL2, so it's select two. So what do you do? The patient doesn't really want to have a, um, to have a prolonged rehabilitation. So I offered to do an AIN and PIN neurectomy. So the pain improved and the patient still have some pain on exertion, but satisfactory range of movement and resumed work in the kitchen. So this is six years later. The now patients have still have increase in pain and stiffness again. And with that, she, he finally agreed for proximal row capectomy, which has faster recovery. So, and this is the results that you can see as six months. So with that, thank you for listening and, and looking forward to any questions. Thank you. I would like to talk about an proximal carpectomy for the wrist stiffness due to advanced is slack snack wrist. Uh, there's nothing to disclose in this presentation. So wrist stiffness was uh, normally the loss of friction extension are also radial ulnar deviation and loss of uh, bronchospination. Then responsible are uh, joined for uh, this kind of uh, uh, loss of the range of motion is uh, flexion extension rather than ulnar deviation coming from the radial carpal and mid carpal joint. Then uh, loss of pronospination is coming from DIUJ. Uh, in this presentation, that I would, I would like to mostly concentrate in, on that uh, flexion extension rather than deviation. So, cause of the wrist stiffness was uh, idiopathic, then uh, joint contraction due to fibrosis rheumatoid arthritis or osteoarthritis, uh, which is a slack and snack with producing an impingement or spur formation uh, on the osteoarthritis uh, condition of the wrist. Uh, normal reflection extension and radial deviation contracture is coming from the radial carpal and mid carpal joint. Then we normally uh, do an open release or arthroscopic release which has already uh, talked by uh, Rick, uh, then the PLC or four-corner fusion. My preference is arthroscopic release. Then uh, uh, this is arthroscopic release in view using the elevator to expand the joint, then releasing that fibrosis on the joint, uh, which has already uh, Dr. Lucchetti talked about this maneuver.
Uh, this has already uh, been talked with by Rick uh, with an, uh, Greg Bain described that uh, he can resect the dorsal radiocarpal ligament, a radioscopic ligament, long radioluminate ligament, and short radioluminate ligament. Then uh, the open fashion uh, release is the same. Uh, then uh, we normally uh, access from the dorsal side. Then we actually cut on the DRC to release in, uh, into an articular uh, fibrosis in a open fashion or arthroscopic fashion. Uh, this is a, a result of the arthroscopic release of the, the joint contractured patient. Then we obtain an excellent clinical result. However, that in a snack and snack wrist, it is quite difficult to release in arthroscopically because in a scaffold bone or a, a, a SL ligament has already damaged. So in this scenario that we prefer, uh, we actually only doing that the PRC or four corner fusion. Uh, four corner fusion is acceptable procedure for uh, stage two slack snack wrist. So that uh, we actually resect the proximal row, uh, then that uh, new creating a new joint between the proximal capitate to the lunate facet of the radius. Advantage of this uh, procedure is expanding the radio uh, range of motion uh, resect, uh, due to resecting the proximal row bone. This advantage uh, of this procedure is incongruity of the between the uh, cartridge of the capitate and net facet, um, and also that uh, lesser carpal height. Then four corner fusion uh, is uh, resect, yeah, that's after resecting the scaphoid, then at the distal uh, carpus going to the radiary, then uh, we actually fix with the four bones, uh, cap, uh, lunate, tricatum, uh, capitate, and hamate. Uh, normally, I selected the, the uh, Burger Bishop ap approach to see the total structure of the wrist. Then, uh, proximal row was already uh, has resected. This patient has a uh, flexion uh, extension range of the 55 degrees, but they are not in a deviation range of 20 degrees. Then, after resecting, uh, immediate post op, that you can see a wide gapping between the capitate and uh, lunate posture, but five years later, you can see a good joint congruity uh, between uh, two bones with a good range of motion with a flexion extension or radial deviation. A four corner fusion is another solution for a slack and snack wrist. Then uh, we actually resecting the scaphoid bone and a fixed with the four bones with the three Actrax screws. Then uh, uh, Michael Savier uh, describes that the uh, flexion ex extension range was a little bit uh, advantage on the four corner fusion. Then uh, radial deviation is much better in the proximal carpectomy, but uh, not enough so that uh, we actually try to do an open arthroscopic fashion. Uh, release first, then I move to a PLC or four corner fusion. So, in conclusion, that cause of uh, stiffness was this uh, demonstrated. Then, uh, 
uh, also, uh, actually, I prefer the, the technique of the isoscopic release. Then the PLC has an advantage on the radial uh, range, and the four corner fusion has an advantage on the flexion extension range, but not, in, uh, not enough. Thank you for your attention. So, so we have uh, time uh, yeah. for questions. And uh, starting, uh, I have a question for Alessandro Marinelli. Alessandro. Uh -oh. Okay, here I am. Yes, okay. And I appreciate your classification and uh, the work you have done with uh, Greg Bain. But I really, uh, I see that uh, in my patient, all the um, stiffness of the elbow are uh, characterized by uh, osteophytes. And the, the pictures are really very similar. I mean, some, uh, they have more uh, soft tissue contractions, some have uh, more osteophytes. But at the end of the day, the, the box of the elbow is, is still anterior and posterior. They have uh, problems in, uh, in uh, also anterior can give problems to a full extension. So please, uh, just to clarify this. Uh, yes, and thank you for, for the question. And uh, I do agree that majority of elbow stiffness are mixed forms where capsular contracture occurs along with osteophytes, HO, and articular incongruency. However, when we approach an elbow stiffness, uh, I think it's uh, essential to identify the prevalent disorder we have uh, to deal with. Sometimes it's just the capsule, sometimes it's the arthritis, sometimes it's a significant HO, or uh, the presence of malunion or nonunion or a persistent instability. So we have different problems, but there is one that there, uh, there is prevalent. So identifying a prevalent pattern of stiffness is important to plan the surgical uh, treatment. And also it's very important, I think, uh, for uh, uh, case series comparison. Uh, for example, if we like to compare the outcome of a different surgical procedure or different uh, post-operative uh, rehabilitation protocols, we have to identify disorders that are homogeneous, disorders that are consistent with uh, each other. Comparing, for example, capsular release with capsular release and not with the massive HO removal or with the osteocapsular arthroplasty. So based on our experience, the stiff classification can be useful both in clinical practice and for scientific purposes. Thank you. I, if you have any question, Greg, can I, yeah, can Greg? I just add, to, Alessandro has done a, a fantastic job with his classification. I think one of the things that highlights is the various causes of the, of the stiffness. And I think we shouldn't, as he as he's actually said in his talk, it's not a diagnosis. The diagnosis is osteoarthritis or some other cause and we need to try and treat it specifically. There's one, one cause that we haven't really discussed today that must be discussed is the patient who has a inflammation of the nerve. So at the wrist, they could have inflammation with the carpal tunnel. Uh, Paco has taught us about the patient that presents to us that everyone says is CRPS, but it's not CRPS. It's just almost like an irritation of the median nerve. 
and that patient needs a carpal tunnel release. The other group that's important in the elbow, the patient can have pain on the inside of the elbow where the ulnar nerve is just a bit inflamed or irritated and the patients don't like it. And that can prevent them getting full extension. So both of those things, the surgery should be directed towards the nerve and not so much the joint. The other thing is we've not really discussed non-operative treatment tonight. Um, that's an important part of the whole thing. So the our hand therapists or physiotherapists are important to help us, anti-inflammatory medications and those sort of things. And I just wanted to make a comment. We've talked about the elbow and the wrist as separate things, but there's some commonality here. Um, both of the common causes of stiffness in the wrist and the elbow are both degenerative osteoarthritis. That's the common cause that, that we all see. Interestingly, in the elbow, the, probably the most common operation is just to do an arthroscopic debridement or clean out. But in the wrist, as, as Toshi said, uh, we don't tend to do that quite as much in the wrist. We tend to do more limited wrist fusions or proximal row carpectomies. So I, th I think it is a little bit different, um, but uh, I think surgery has a role, but also non-operative treatment. We shouldn't forget that. Any, any more? Uh, I've, I've got a question for the panel. Just uh, yeah, thank you for thank you for having me. It's it's an honor to be on this panel with such incredible leaders in the field. And uh, just to bring up a question, <clears throat> your initial management of a stiff elbow or a stiff wrist. Um, how, how many people are are doing intraarticular steroid injections, and and you know that seeing how they do as a diagnostic and therapeutic modality before mm -hmm. taking them to the OR just for the people watching in the, uh, around the world. I, I used to do uh, injection for a, a diagnostic point of view, because if I have uh, problems uh, inside with uh, the anesthetic and the cortisone inside the joint, I have, I have uh, to think to something and that, that is inside the, the joint. And uh, on the other hand, if I do not have any results, I think something outside the joint. It is a, you know, a very simple thing, but can be useful. Yeah, I, that's my experience as well. It's very good for uh, diagnosing. Yeah. Any more question? Andrea Celli, do, do you have any uh, trick uh, to sign uh, what is must be do uh, arthroscopic or what must be do opening the joint? Is only to based on the quality of the surgeon or not? Yeah, I think it's uh, thank you for uh, for this question because. I think it's very important to define the, the entity of a lesion that we have to treat. If we're talking about soft tissue, only soft tissue retraction, maybe we can decide or open or arthroscopy. Maybe we can move more for an arthroscopic treatment. And this is according to our ability to perform the technique. Second one, if we move more with a bone incongruency or where the bone is involved, for example, after a, a post-traumatic lesion, maybe 
can be more useful if we move to an open technique or a combined procedure. Just start with a, an arthroscopic and after do some part of a procedure and after move to an open. So we can do an lateral approach and do the medial approach by scope. Another important that I think it's very important what the Dr. Bay say is the role of a nerve around the elbow and around the wrist. I know more about, about the elbow. We had cases in which the ulnar nerve was compressed and not released during the surgery. And after the patient start the rehabilitation program, but the pain that they feel on the, line, on the medial side as a compression point of ulnar nerve influence the regain of emotion when we get during the surgery. So for that, when I have a patient that have a 90 degrees of stiff, I like to release the nerve as I showed to you proximally and distally. Just not transpose, but just release to avoid any compression point that can influence the regain of emotion during the rehabilitation program post-operative. Yeah. Yeah, this is a thing that is extremely useful because I, uh, when I started to do arthroscopy, I started in very difficult cases uh, and uh, I realized that my first two cases many, many years ago, that the ulnar nerve must be released. If you have uh, 90, 100, 100 degrees of flexion, because then the ulnar nerve runs normally between one centimeter, a centimeter and a half in a normal elbow. And now uh, I, I, I did have a very, very, very small complication about the ulnar nerve, just because I always released, I think, not transposed, but released. Released, yeah. Please, the, the rest of the session. Yeah, thank you. Um, actually, actually, there's a question coming from the, the TFCC injuries in that stiff wrist. Then uh, uh, actually, audience asked us to uh, we need to repair the TFCC at the time of release point. Then, uh, Rick, do you have any comment on that? Uh, absolutely, yes. I already asked for him by write, writing him, uh, but I wanted to just to um uh, give my comments and my uh, opinion about this normally the arthroscopic arthritis needed a, an immediate rehabilitation so the rehabilitation is not congruent with the type of surgery of repairing when you're permitting you perform a repairing of the fcc you need to immobilize the the, the wrist and part of the elbow not permitting the pronounced supination and uh, limiting the flexion extension so I suggest if there is a lesion of the FCC, not to repair the lesion of the FCC during the arthroscopic arthrolysis. And before to do the surgery, you have to talk about with the patient. Important thing is that, so you have to say that you perform the arthroscopic arthrolysis and no, absolutely no lesion you can find, you have to repair. Absolutely, you can find, for example, the scaphalonate ligament lesion, LT lesion, dorsal capsule lesion. You have not to repair them. You have to detect and to record that, and then you pass to repairing that in after. Before you need to improve the flexion extension, the pronunciation, then when all everything is stabilized, you can perform the repairing. And mostly you can find also the lesion, osteochondral lesion. And the osteochondral lesion is the limiting, uh, another limit of the, uh, of the results. Osteochondral lesion to limit the results and also have an evolution through 
and arthritis of the waist. So discuss very well with the patient before the surgery. Yeah, I agree with that uh, because on the uh, stiffest uh, patient has tendency to have a uh, contracture. So once you release that, then uh, the patient need to uh, earlier rehabilitation, arranger motion exercise. Only that uh, exclusion is uh, to my understanding is a pronounced contracture due to that uh, a TFCC malposition. Uh, after uh, cut, after uh, damage on that phobia region. Then uh, Arna head goes dorsally, then TFCC was reattached to the wrong position. And in the scenario that we firstly cut the TFCC, then the uh, need to repair in the phobia region. I think that this is the only uh, exclusion scenario uh, to repairing the TFCC. Normally, I normally uh, leave it. Uh, May I say some comment about the restatolysis? Um, I was asked to uh, discuss uh, about the arthroscopic arthrolysis. The mm -hmm. arthroscopic arthrolysis is only one part of arthrolysis of the wrist. Exists also the open arthrolysis life for the elbow. Mm -hmm. And it works well, very well, like the arthroscopic arthrolysis. And there is a, a special indication. For example, we have a plate that is uh, disturbing the flexion extension. You need to open the wrist to remove the plate and perform the arthroscopic arthrolysis by open surgery. There is no limit and the results are mostly similar to that. And when you have a dorsal plate, you have to remove the dorsal plate and perform the arthrolysis by the dorsal plate, protecting the wrist and performing the immediate rehabilitation. And this is very important. This is like for a distaladunular uh, joint, it's the same. You can perform by arthroscopic, you perform it also by surgery. And remember that sometimes you may have a um, malunion of the wrist. When you have the malunion of the wrist with the rigidity, you cannot perform the arthrolysis. You need to perform the correction and the correction and other things. So the limit is the uh, good indication, the um, diagnosis, perfect diagnosis of the condition that determine the rigidity of the waist. Like for the elbow, it's the same. All the joints are similar. Thank you. Margaret, I have a question about that. Most of the new rectomy report was coming from the Germany. To me, then that uh, I actually cut an uh, PI, uh, PIN uh, at the time of the surgery of the Sobekaponzi procedure, but uh, uh, yeah, that uh, I think that your comment is uh, pain is uh, actually cause of the uh, loss of friction extension or some kind of uh, wrist stiffness. Do, do you have any comments on that? Um, yeah, so I do think that, well, pain, it is with patients' pain, they will just prefer not to use uh, the, the wrist and then, and that will cause, and itself that will cause, and also when you have degeneration, you, you will have you will have stiffness anyway. So you will have decreased range of movement. So in that way, I think they actually call, they, there's multiple, they're multifactorial to have wrist stiffness. It's not just degeneration. And sometimes there is a pain factor as well. So, so, so when I talk about neurectomy, basically I'm just saying that, um, that we can, we can cut part of the contributing factor and then and see how the patient is. I'm not saying that it will, as, as you can see in the results, not all of them are satisfactory, but even if it's 
it's bearable for a while and then that will be and that will buy some time for them to prepare themselves for salvage procedures i think that is a good way to do it and there are patients who are for example with arthritis and all that they will actually have a lot of pain as well and sometimes i will do a neurectomy as well just to just to give them the pain relief um, as you mentioned about the um, the study for the um, for the neurectomies, um, actually most of the total neurectomies are done by the the the, the European West. The, the limited ones, the AIN and PIN ones, are actually done by the US. So I don't know why <laughs> that's the case, but this is the, this is what I've um, when I I found in the literature review. Thank you. Thank you. So I think that. The, can I just make a comment? So while we're talking about neurectomies, we don't tend to talk about neurectomies in the elbow, uh, but, but in the elbow book that we had, a Dr. Amar Ali from Egypt, uh, he put together a very nice chapter. I was a co-author on it, but he did a lot of the work. There is a role for a neurectomy in the elbow as well. So the cases we've done are the patients who are older and have lots of comorbidities so that we can do a smaller operation than, say, a big elbow replacement. So I think there is a place for it. Uh, you should look up the book to see the details of how to do it, but I think there's a place to do it in the elbow as well. Thank you. Uh, I think that it's time to close this session. So that, uh, Luigi, uh, please close the webinar. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you, all the, the faculty, because uh, we know that it's uh, time consuming, but it's really interesting to share our experience. So uh, remember that uh, we have the, the meeting in Boston next year, and uh, we will uh, uh, treat uh, again uh, uh, the stiffness of the urban wrist, uh, writing a book that is approved from the executive committee of the ISACOS, and it will be on um, on the on the line uh, in next uh, in next year. So thank you very much to everybody. Thank you, Greg. Thank you, Andrea, Alessandro, Margaret, Ricardo, and Toshi, and Benjamin Grace as well. And thank you very much for your presentation, very high level. So I hope to see you in presence next year. See you. Bye bye. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Luigi. Thank you very much. Bye. Thank you. Ciao, Greg. Ciao, Gigi. Bye bye. Bye-bye. So much to the webinar co-chairs, faculty, and all attendees. Isacos will host the recording of this webinar with presentations on Isacos Global Link. Webinar attendance certificates will be provided to all registered attendees via email. Please save the date for the Isacos Congress in Boston, June 18th through June 21st, 2023, and a reminder that the call for abstracts is now open, with the deadline being September 1st, 2022. Don't miss our other upcoming Issacos webinars, including the next one presented by the Issacos Shoulder Committee, titled Tips and Tricks for a Successful TSA and RSA Arthroplasty, which will be Thursday, August 11th, 2022 at 1300 UTC. Isakos would once again like to gratefully acknowledge Smith & Nephew as our contributing sponsor for this webinar. Thank you so much, and have a great day.
Thank you.